<clears throat> well, let me start with um, telling you about one of the most anticipated movie in 2019. And that movie was the climax of a decade-long project that started all the way in 2008 with a combined 21 movies slowly building up to the climax of that movie. And with each movie building up to that story, you know, you have pieces of the puzzle of a larger story, you know, started being reviewed more and more with each movie. And then after more than a decade, with the combined 21 movies, the time has come to tell the climax of that story in 2019. Now, some of you immediately would recognize what movie I'm talking about. Do we know what movie that is? No. Well, it is the movie Avengers Endgame. Right? The Avengers Endgame is the endgame of a project that started a long time ago. It was planned in such a way that each movie, they'll have you know, snippets of a larger narrative. And it is because of these movies that you know, people have started talking about post-credit scenes. And it becomes a topic of discussion among the fans. And over the course of you know, the decade and all these 21 movies, what happens is that Avengers Endgame became a very, very and highly anticipated movie. And it did not disappoint when it uh, was released in 2019. It became one of the highest grossing movies of all time. It made a total of uh, $2.8 billion worldwide. It was the fastest movie to reach the earnings of $500 million. It did that, it did that in three days. It did, took the movie five days to earn $1 billion, eight days to earn $1.8 billion. People were eager for this movie to come out. They were eager to watch the climax of the story. And for many fans, they watched it a number of times in the cinema. And in one sense, that's understandable, isn't it? You know, if you are someone who's invested in the storyline of this Marvel universe, you want to know how the superheroes would defeat that supervillain, Thanos, isn't it? The big bad guy, you've been waiting for 10 years for the climax. So how is this Thanos going to be defeated? And that sense of anticipation is strong. And that same anticipation happened at the first Christmas. Christmas is next week. That is the day where many Christians throughout the world, we celebrate the birth and coming of our Lord Jesus. This is a day that the Israelites in those days, they were longing for. And as a people, as a nation, they were eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come, the promised Messiah to come, to rescue them, to liberate them from their oppressors. And during the time of Christ, they were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And they have been waiting hundreds and hundreds of years for God to send His promised Messiah to come. And it's been 400 years since they heard anything from God. So they were waiting, they were longing for this promised king. And today we are looking at the Ma Matthew's account of Jesus' life right at the start of his gospel in the very first book of the New Testament. And to many of our modern ears, that is a very strange beginning. Very strange beginning. Matthew, and by extension the New Testament, it starts with a genealogy. Jesus' genealogy, a family tree of Jesus. What on earth is going on? Why is he doing that? I mean, 
I can't think of a faster way to bore people to tears if you want to start a story with a genealogy, right? Immediately you start with a list of people. What was Matthew thinking? Well, we're going to find out. And one of the things that we want to do as Christians is that we have to remember this is also God's word to us. Even though we may only see it as a list of people's names, God is telling us something about Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, you're here, it might be super confusing to you as you open up the New Testament and read Matthew chapter 1. But again, I ask you to bear with me as I try to explain to you the significance of this family tree. And hopefully at the end of the sermon, you come uh, to recognize and see the meaning of this part of the Scriptures. So what I'm going to do, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. I'll be reading from verses 1 to 17. Now, if you have your own Bibles, it will be easier to follow along, but the passages will be behind me as well. Let me invite you to stand as I read from God's Word. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Raham, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother has been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. You may be seated. So what can we glean from this passage? Three points. Let's have a look. Point number one. The promised king has come. The promised king has come. Verse 1, let me read that again. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. That is a sentence loaded with significance, especially for an Israelite. Remember, they have been waiting for the promised Messiah to come. And by starting his gospel account with this, Matthew is saying, Jesus, Jesus is this promised Messiah. Right? Reading this verse or this sentence, 
is like us sitting in a cinema, and then the screen comes on, and we see Avengers Endgame title card. We know we're in for a ride. We know we're watching the climax of a story. This verse, this sentence is the same for the Israelites. This is the genealogy or the family tree of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And David and Abraham, they are two gigantic figures in the Old Testament. Right? They are two major pillars holding up the Old Testament narratives. And they are major because God made promises to them. And we heard these promises read to us in our Bible reading, isn't it? First one, Genesis chapter 12. God gave Abraham a threefold promise of land, seed, and blessing. And this is God promising Abraham that God himself will be his God and God of all his descendants and that they will be his people. Right, first, Genesis 12 to Abraham. And then to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Great promise of God to David that David's kingdom, David's throne will be established forever. There is going to be an offspring of David who will be ruling and serving God's people forever. And throughout their history, as they went through persecution and suffering and hardship, God would raise up a leader and rescue them as part of his fulfillment of these promises. But they keep running into problems. God's promises, God's blessings, well, they, they never seem to last. They always seem to fall into the hands of their enemies. And at the time of the New Testament, they are in the hands of the Roman Empire. And so at that time, they are eagerly longing and waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. Promises to Abraham, promises to David. And this promised Messiah, that's why is known as the son of David and the son of Abraham. He will be the one who is going to fulfill, ultimately, all these promises that God made to Abraham and David. They had the expectation that when he comes, he's going to come and liberate them from their oppressors, just like how it's been done countless times before. And so when they read verse 1 of the Gospel account, they know, wow, this promised king has come. This Jesus, he's the promised Messiah. That time of longing and waiting is no more because Christ has come. The end game has come. Jesus is God's end game. The Israelites, they knew that. He is the Messiah. God has kept His promises. And those who are alive in those days, they can be a witness to the redemption and salvation of the Israelites. After 400 years of silence from God, God comes, acts decisively, decisively to fulfill His promises in Christ. Right? The promised king has come. But unfortunately for the Israelites, this promised king is not like what they expected. You see, the problem is that they perceive their deepest problem is that they are being oppressed by another nation. If you have a wrong diagnosis of your problems, you will be looking for the wrong solutions. The Israelites were looking for a savior from their earthly oppressors. And therefore, they were longing for Jesus to be the king who will vanquish all their enemies on earth. If you have the wrong diagnosis of your problem, you will be looking for the wrong solutions. And I think that's been the story of the, our Western world for the past few decades. We have the wrong diagnosis of our problems, 
and we have been looking for solutions in all the wrong places. Let's say an example. In the last century, we thought our biggest problem is our repressive sexual ethics and morals, and therefore the solution is to liberate ourselves from that repressive sexual ethics, and from there, we have the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s, isn't it? Or, after that, people began to question and try to find the meaning of life, and they thought the solution is the accumulation of wealth or accumulation of power as much as they can, how did that work out for them? Or in the last few years, we think our biggest problem is that, you know what, we are not embracing our true sexual or gendered self. And therefore, there's a rise in transgenderism. The Israelites, they long for a savior to save them from their oppressors. What are you longing for? What kind of savior are you looking for? Health, pleasure, power, meaning in your life, relationships, significance in your life? Where are you finding the solutions of these longing of yours? What is your deepest longing? And what do you think your deepest problems are? Let me read you this quote from D.A. Carson. He wrote this from uh, his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. He says, If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor but he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. So point number one, yes, the king has come, but what has he come for? It leads to our second point. This king, this promised king, has come for sinners. This promised king has come for sinners. That's from verses 2 to 16. And as you read through this genealogy, Matthew has, what Matthew has done with this genealogy is unusual. It is unusual in that he included four women in that list. Because in those days when genealogies or family trees, when they are written down, they generally don't include the women. In this case, Matthew included four women. So these four women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, which is Bathsheba. To the Israelites, there are two major problems, two major problems on this. First is that these four women, they are most likely Gentile women. In a genealogy talking about the promised Messiah to the Israelites, it is remarkable that Matthew included Gentiles in the genealogy. What is Matthew trying to say? He's trying to show his readers that this promised king has come. He's not just the promised king for the Israelites. He's the promised king and Messiah to both Jews and Gentiles alike. Not just a king to the Israelites. He's the king of the Gentiles as well. 
they are Gentiles in this genealogy. And that's why it's not surprising to find right at the end of his gospel account, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, what does Jesus say? Go and make disciples of the Israelite nations. No. No, he doesn't say that. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. The message that the promised king has come is for both Jews and Gentiles is already right here, right from the get-go in the genealogy. And the second thing, the second thing the Israelites had a problem with uh, about these four women is that they had morally dubious reputation among the Israelites. They were thought of as sinners. They were not considered to be morally upright. They were sinners in the eyes of the Israelites. So take, for example, Rahab. So her story can be found in Joshua chapter 2. And in the whole book of Joshua, she's described as a prostitute three times in the book of Joshua. So even though the actions uh, in her story, she saved two spies that Joshua himself sent out, the fact remains that the Israelites thought of her as a prostitute, and in their eyes, she was not a person of high moral character. They, these four women, they did not have good reputation among the Israelites. They were considered to be sinners. Matthew, he knew this, but yet he included these four women in the genealogy. And he is showing that this promised Messiah has come for sinners, both Jews and Gentiles alike. This promised king includes sinners in his kingdom even Gentile sinners in his kingdom. And these four women, even though they, in their eyes, in the eyes of the Israelites, they did not have moral, high moral character, God worked through them to bring about the promised king. Even though they did not have perfect sinlessness, they were still included in the kingdom of God. In other words, the reign of this king who has come is a reign of grace. In fact, it will be a scandalous grace. It is scandalous, particularly to the Israelites in those days, because people of such poor moral reputation and poor moral character, they are saved and included in the kingdom of this Messiah. That's outrageous. That's scandalous in their minds. How could a holy and righteous God have these sinners before Him and in His kingdom? scandalous in their minds. But how could God have done that? It's because this promised king has come for sinners. And the grace that he shows those who trust in him, in many senses, is absolutely scandalous. Absolutely scandalous. Now, it is easy for us in our Western world right now, to start thinking highly of ourselves when we compare our lives with these women, isn't it? Well, you may say, well, I've never been a prostitute like Rahab. In the case of Tamar, you can say, you know, I've never pretended to be a prostitute and sleep with my father-in-law. I've never done those things. I'm safe. I should not be considered a sinner. In fact, I'm a very reputable member of our society. I do a lot of good things. I work in the health sciences, health industry. I help people all the time. I work in retail, and I treat people really well, even though they might have been very rude to me. 
I work in engineering. I really love my colleagues and I treat them really well. And on and on and on. You get the point. But the fact of the matter is, on this list of the genealogy, every single person has sinned. Every single person. Now the fact of these four women, they were highlighted, is because what the Israelites thought of them. But in the eyes of God, none of these people were perfect. In fact, take Abraham and David once again. Major characters in the Old Testament, they sinned terribly, terribly. Because ultimately, it's not about how we view ourselves or how others view us. It's how an absolutely holy and righteous God views us. And if we are honest with ourselves, well, none of us match up to God's standards. In fact, we don't even match up with our own humanly standards. Let me give you a very quick recent example. One of the common things in our um, political discourse in recent years, either in the usual running of our government or election time, is that the politicians, they are far more keen to talk about one another and calling each other names than talk about actual policies. Have you noticed that? And the common thing to do in recent years is to really dig up dirt on the other party and expose them. And the main reason why they do that is to show the public that the other person or the other party, they are untrustworthy, they want to destroy their credibility, and therefore the public, you should not vote for them. Don't listen to them. And I was very tempted to give examples, but I thought not to, because I'm sure all of you can think of examples. Just, you know, read the news every week. They just like to throw mud at one another. And it seems like no one is immune from this. And part of the issue is no one is completely clean. No one is perfect. None of our leaders are perfect. And if we are honest, we are not perfect. We have sinned. And if that's the case, how can we stand before a holy and righteous God? How can we? It is because the promised king has come for sinners like you and me. That's how. And this king, he rules by grace, and we follow this king through scandalous grace, in fact, That's the only way we can stand before holy and righteous God. He has come from sinners, for sinners. Let me read Matthew 1.21, a few verses down from our passage. This is the angel speaking to Joseph about Mary. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Our greatest need is our salvation from our sins. God knows that, and that is why this promised king has come from sinners, offering scandalous grace to us. And part of what makes this grace scandalous, which is why we come to our third point, is that he gives us a new beginning. Our third and final point. This promised king has come to bring a new beginning. Verse 17. Let me read that verse again. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And notice what Matthew focuses on in in this genealogy. 
It is not an exhaustive genealogy. He skips people. He crafts his genealogy very carefully and deliberately in the way that he presents Jesus' family tree to show that the story of Israelites under the theme of exile and return. For 14 generations, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile, and 14 from exile to Messiah. Now, there's a reason why he also uses 14 generations, the number 14. We don't have time for that. If you're curious, come and ask me after the service. But the division he uses is the exile. And the Israelites, they were driven out of their land into the land of Babylon as judgment from God for their idolatry and their sin and their exile from their land is a symptom, a picture of their spiritual condition with God. Because of their sin, because of their idolatry, they're alienated from God and they received His judgment. And even though eventually they did return to the land, it was not a triumphant return. In fact, they sinned again. The Israelites never reached the same heights as they did under King David and King Solomon. And eventually, as we saw, they came under the occupation of the Roman Empire. And in the minds of all the Israelites in those days, they would still think of themselves under exile, in exile. They haven't heard from God for 400 years, still anticipating the promised Messiah. And one of the things that you have to remember as well, they have a number of false starts in their history. Right? Moses was so promising. He led them out of slavery from Egypt, but then he sinned, he could not enter the promised land. Saul, he started so well as the first king, he ends up sinning and God took the throne away from him. David united the tribes. He was the first, in some sense, legitimate king of Israel. What happened there? He sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. And then Solomon came, wisest man in history. Yet he's so wise that his wives and concubines led him away from God. Time after time after time, when there was someone who was so promising to fulfill God's promises to them, they failed. Again and again, they failed. Their supposed Savior failed them, never brought them to everlasting life in the promised land. And in many senses, that's our story today, isn't it? The supposed saviors of our world presented to us as the ones bringing us to the promised land in our lives, they fail us again and again. And when we reach that supposed promised land, we find it empty when we arrive. Jeremiah um, chapter 2, verse 13 has a great picture of what this looks like. Let me read from that passage. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And notice this imagery and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They have dug their own system, cisterns, cisterns that can't hold water. Finding our saviors in this world is like desperately trying to hold water in a broken system. It's futile, it is impossible, but we try to do it anyway when we find our saviors in this world. That's what it feels like. But here in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew presents Jesus as this promised king who has come, the one who will bring an end to the exile and bring everlasting blessing to the people, a kingdom that will never perish. 
He is a king who is going to come to bring a new beginning to sinners, Jews and Gentiles alike. So no matter how checkered your past is, the king is coming to bring a new beginning to you and, and your exile away from God. And that means you're no longer pouring your lives into a broken system because Christ comes and he gives you a new one, a new life. And these four women that I mentioned in the genealogy, they have a new beginning in Christ. You can have a new beginning in Christ. The promised king has come to bring a new beginning like to sinners like you and me. So are you saying any sinners can receive a new beginning in Christ? Yes. Even me who had a terrible past with substance abuse? Well, yes. Even me who had so many failed marriages or had sexual past, sexual sin in my past? Yes. Or me who had huge pride and ego who I am and what I own? Yes. Even me who, whom I feel that I don't deserve any love or grace whatsoever? Yes. Any and all sinners can come to Christ and receive a new beginning. Now, your external circumstances may not change immediately, but when you put your faith in Christ, you are a new person, new purpose in life. You no longer live for yourself. You live for King Jesus. But what does it cost to bring this new beginning? The cost of this new beginning for those who follow Christ, is nothing less than the death and resurrection of this king. And that's the scandal of the Christmas story. Right? This promised king, he has come for sinners, for Jews and Gentiles alike, to bring a new beginning for them, but the only way he can do that is to sacrifice himself, taking up upon himself the wrath that we deserve and being raised again from the dead, exalted as our king. All that to save us from our sins. That's scandalous grace. That's scandalous grace. Sarah Irving Stonebreaker, she is a senior lecturer at Western Sydney University. She became uh, a Christian in her late 20s, and this is what she said when she found out more about the Christian faith. Christian, <coughs> Christianity was also, to my surprise, radical far more radical than the leftist ideologies with which I'd previously been enamored. The love of God was unlike anything which I had expected, or of which I could make sense. <laughs> in becoming fully human in Jesus, God behaved decidedly unlike a God. Why deign to walk through dark, death dark's valley, or hold the weeping limbs of leper if you are God? Why submit to humiliation and death on a cross in order to save those who hate you. God suffered punishment in our place because of a radical love. This sacrificial love is utterly opposed to the individualism, consumerism, exploitation, and objectification of our culture. In other words, God's grace in Christ is absolutely scandalous. Let me end by bringing us back to the start of the sermon. I mentioned about Avengers Endgame, the endgame of a long, decade-long project, and the people behind this project obviously wanted this climactic movie to be 
to be the biggest movie of all time, to earn as much money as possible. And in that story, Thanos, the main villain, his endgame is to eradicate half of all life in the universe. And his reason is that you know, if life is left unchecked, life will cease to exist because the resources in the universe is finite. So, so his endgame, to kill half of all life in the universe. And the studio's endgame is to make the biggest movie of all time. What is the endgame for King Jesus? What is the endgame for the Christmas story? And Matthew gives us hints right from the start from this genealogy. The promised king, he has come, and he is the one that the Israelites were waiting for, the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and David. But this is a king that defies all their expectations and all our expectations because this king has come for sinners and brings new beginnings. And instead of killing all of life in the universe, Jesus sacrificed himself so that those who believe in him will have the greatest blessing in the whole universe. And so instead of us looking for saviors in the things or people of this world, God's purpose, God's endgame in Christ is to bring sinners like you and I into his kingdom by his sheer scandalous grace. That's the Christmas story. Father God, we come before you. And once again, we want to recognize we are sinners in your sight, undeserving of your blessing, undeserving of your salvation, but yet you have sent Jesus to fulfill the promises you have made from long ago to save us sinners, Jews and Gentiles alike that no matter what our past has been, we can have a new beginning in Him. What an amazing grace that is. Father, we celebrate Christmas every year. And every year, there's so much fanfare around it. And many of them are good things. But Father, help us to never lose sight of what makes Christmas special what is at the center Jesus Christ the one who loved us and gave himself for us help us to celebrate him in Jesus name we pray